Today's sermon comes from 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the, sexual, the sexually, immoral, or sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. For many decades in South Africa, came to an end in the early 1990s, but the, the system of apartheid reigned in South Africa. It was a very oppressive structure of racism. And there were horrible crimes committed because of it. But what's very interesting when you look at the apartheid in South Africa for the many decades that it reigned, it came out of a theology. It came out of a doctrine uh, from Stellenbosch University in the 1930s and the 1940s. And it was out of Stellenbosch University, also seminary, uh, where there was this distorted Christian theology that led to this belief that Afrikaners were a chosen people. And they took that chosen people uh, belief that they distorted out of the scriptures to mean that they were a biologically superior race. And as a superior race, they had to segregate so that they weren't tainted by the darkness and the barbarism of the lesser peoples. So what happened over decades, many decades, was horrible crimes. More than 3.5 million black, Indian, and biracial people were removed from their homes. It was one of the most, the largest mass removals in, in history. These horrible crimes continued. The, 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 peop, the lesser peoples were put into slums. Education, beaches, medical care, public services were all segregated. And so what you had was this segregated society in South Africa where people were dehumanized. And they were dehumanized based on a set of beliefs of theology and doctrine. Now, why do I share that story? 
It's because there's a dynamic connection between your doctrine, and when I say doctrine, when Paul mentions it here in 1 Timothy, it's just a set of beliefs. There's a dynamic connection between your doctrine and how you live. Between what you believe and how you behave. In fact, what you believe will determine how you live. Now, you may not be aware of it or not. You may be aware of it, you may not. And this would be whether you're a follower of Christ or whether you're not in Christ and you're investigating Christianity. You're religious or not religious. Everyone has a set of beliefs. They may be implicit, they may be explicit. You may not even be able to speak them verbally, but you have a functional set of beliefs that determine how you live your life and what you do. Paul, in writing this letter to a young pastor named Timothy, in his letter includes the word doctrine seven times. Two times in these first 11 verses. And he does so because he is explaining to Timothy why doctrine is important. Why knowing what your set of beliefs is is important. So the question that's raised is, why is sound or good doctrine, why does sound doctrine matter? And why why is there the option of, you know what, doctrine and theology, I'll get into it later in the sermon, but typically we say doctrine and theology, oh, it just, it separates, it divides, turns people angry, it gets people up. So we're just going to get rid of that and just go love people. You can't do that because you're just going to go love people based on a set of beliefs because everything you do comes out of what you believe. So why does sound doctrine matter? Why is it important? First, because sound doctrine preserves the church. Verse three, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in A.D. 64. This was five years after his ministry in Ephesus. And at the end of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, there's that famous passage in Acts 20 that we looked at not too long ago in our study of Acts, where he stands on the shores of Ephesus speaking to the Ephesian elders as he's leaving. It's his departing message, and he warns them of something. And this is what he warns them of in Acts 20, 29 through 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, that means inside the church, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. These twisted things that Paul was warning about is this different doctrine that he brings up here in 1 Timothy 1. Not but five years later, Paul's warning came to fruition. The Ephesian church was in a bad place as this bad and distorted doctrine was beginning to decay the church from the inside. Also, when Paul says certain people, the question becomes, who are these certain people? These certain people that were spreading or teaching this different doctrine were probably elders. You say, how do we know that? Well, in this passage, they're called teachers of the law. 
And in the, in the letter of 1 Timothy, teaching is always the responsibility of the elders. Also, at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, it says that two men were excommunicated from the church by Paul, not by the elders of the church. If it were just a normal member in the church, the elders would take care of it. But if there's an elder that's doing this, then Paul, with his authority, is removing an elder. And then the third reason why this is probably elders that are the certain people is that there's repeated concerns throughout the letter about elder qualifications, as we'll see, and a process by which you install new elders in a church to replace ones that have left the faith. And you say, What's, why is this detail important? Why is this important? Why are these two observations? And by, by the two, I mean that the church of Ephesus went from strong and healthy to bad and decaying in five years, that observation. But the second, that it was probably elders in the church that were teaching this different doctrine. Why are those important details? Because they reveal two incredibly important truths. And that is that a church that is nourished well from God's word and healthy can turn to bad doctrine in amazing with amazing speed. The solemn fact is that any given church can abandon the faith in a generation. That's how quickly a church can decay. Can decay. Second important truth that comes out of this is that the church is not destroyed from the outside. It never is. It's never destroyed from the outside. And yet we'll hear that, right? The culture and what's happening, look what it's doing to the church. No. A church only falls apart from the inside. Now, the outside culture can influence the church and influence doctrine. But at the end of the day, it's people within the church that begin, begin teaching bad doctrine, begin turning from it, from good doctrine. That's what causes a church to, de to decay. If Scripture doesn't define the church, the forces of culture will. And if Scripture doesn't define the church, the forces of culture will. That's why sound doctrine matters. The Puritans, the colonists who settled in New England in the 1630s, when they settled in New England, they had a very strong concern and a deep concern that as they established churches, that their pastors would be literate and be trained. And so their solution to making sure pastors were literate and trained was the founding of Harvard University. Harvard University was founded to form character in their students, but Harvard was founded to equip pastors to teach and train the gospel of Jesus Christ. They started off their motto, was truth for Christ in the church. The university was named after a pastor, John Harvard. About four centuries later, just recently, the, the team of Harvard chaplains elected as their head chaplain an atheist named Greg Epstein. And Greg Epstein makes this comment, and, and let me just say, he's spot on with what he sees. He says, there's a rising group of people who no longer identify with any religious tradition. 
but still experience a real need for conversation and support around what it means to be a good human and to live an ethical life. Epstein's been at Harvard since, I think, 2005 as their humanist chaplain, teaching a movement that centers people's relationships as the center of their life and not around, around God. Now, I share that. That's not, I'm not casting judgment on Greg Epstein or even any of you here that maybe are, would say you're an atheist and maybe trying to figure out what Christianity is. There's no judgment here. I'm sharing it, though, for you to see right, how something that started so pure and in God's word turns into something that is far from it. Right? And, and what I share about Harvard is true of many universities, seminaries, and churches, that if Scripture doesn't define church, the forces of culture will. And the slide and the, the decay is quick and can be very rapid when Scripture no longer defines the church. So why does sound doctrine matter? First, because it preserves the church, Christ's church. But second, because sound doctrine produces love. Now, for some of you, you go, ah, that's not the first thing I would think of that produces love. Theology and doctrine, in fact, when I've been a part of it, all it does is create arguments and division. People get upset. And so we react to that by saying, we're just going to touch it. And I would say that's the wrong reaction. Let me explain why. When these certain people started teaching different doctrine in this church at Ephesus, what were they teaching? What exactly were they teaching? Verse four, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, what are myths and endless genealogies? Well, myths are fables, far-fetched stories that were told oftentimes about the gods. Genealogies, lists of family trees, were very common in the Old Testament, and they are. You read the Old Testament, you'll read all kinds of genealogies, and typically, what do you do when you get to a genealogy? You skip over it, right? The beginning of some of the Gospels start with long genealogies. Right? The point of genealogies and the reason the Bible's full of them is that they're tracking the seed from Genesis 3 when God announces he's going to send a Savior and a Messiah to rescue the world. The genealogies are just tracking the story and tracking that seed until Christ finally came. That's why after the beginning of the Gospels, you'll never read a genealogy in the New Testament. Again, because genealogies were all about tracking the Messiah, tracking Christ. But... These teachers in the church at Ephesus were taking these genealogies and they were creating these you know, heroic stories, these speculative stories of the people in the genealogies and creating this kind of sensational uh, truths that were very attractive to people, almost like kind of decoding something like in this genealogy. Here's this really neat truth, and wow, if you get it, it unlocks your whole life, right? This mystery. That's how they were treating the genealogies. 
And it wasn't so much that they set out to be heretical. It's just that they wanted to find the deeper truth in the Scriptures. They wanted to find that hidden nugget that was somewhere laid in a genealogy, right, that they could find. And when they found it, it became this amazing, sensational truth. Paul's simple teaching was just not enough for them. The simple teaching of the gospel and of a Savior, Jesus Christ, wasn't enough. Now, you say, where do we see that modern day? It's actually all over the place. I'll start with the, uh, the incredible distortions that the number 666, which is a number in the book of Revelation, how it has been used throughout the years to describe every international villain possible, from Caesar to Napoleon to Hitler to Stalin. Or consider the best-selling book, The Bible Code. It was written by a, an, an Israeli mathematician, Eliyahu Rips. And in the book, he claims to have decoded the Bible with a computer formula. And it has unlocked 3,000-year-old prophecies of history and of what would happen. And so this claim to unlock the code of the Bible has prophesied Kennedy's assassination, the election of President Bill Clinton, the Holocaust, Hiroshima, moon landing, collision of a comet with Jupiter. It goes on and on. Religious novelties that take the scripture and find that secret code that can unlock your life and give you a truth that is exciting and sensational. The problem with this is that it does not outright reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just replaces it. And it puts the emphasis on this speculation. And we all love speculations, right? Every part of our fallen being loves a story, loves something speculative, a conspiracy, right? It's very, very attractive to us. John Chrysostom, he's one of the church fathers in the fourth century. He said this very succinct, but very true statement. The lack of scriptural knowledge is the source of all evils in the church. Basically, that says that bad doctrine, right, an incorrect set of beliefs from the Scripture is the source of all evil in the church. Question is why? Why does this distorted doctrine, why is it bad? What does it produce? Well, it produces questions. It produces division. It produces distrust. And it produces elitism. Those that buy into the speculation and those that don't buy into the speculation. And those that buy into the speculation look on those that don't buy into it as less spiritual, lacking intelligence. I would just say in our world, in the past two years, that would be conspiracy theories. Some people get it. But all those lesser people don't quite get the conspiracy that's happening. And what happens, and a lot of times, not all the time, but a number of times, these conspiracies are linked to the Bible. 
It can be linked to the Bible, and all this gets pulled together into something that's very fascinating and exciting. And what do they produce? I mean, conspiracy theories, don't they unite the church? Don't they promote love? No. They produce division. They produce distrust. They produce name-calling. They produce categorizing. Oh, you're that person. You're that person. You buy that conspiracy. You buy that one. That's what was happening here in this church at Ephesus. And I've said it often in our study through Acts, which we just finished, and now this study. Not much has changed over 2,000 years. You know why? Because the human heart hasn't changed. Right? The human heart hasn't changed. If that's what bad doctrine produces, what does sound doctrine produce? Just the opposite. Sound doctrine produces just the opposite. Into verse four. Sound doctrine promotes the stewardship from God that is by faith. This word stewardship in the original Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, original language, means managing a household. Sound doctrine produces order in God's house, in God's church. Order and love and unity, not factions and not division. And notice this ordering of God's house is from God. It's not from us. It's not from theories we develop. It's from his word. Verse five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart in a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of sound doctrine is love. And this love flows from three sources, Paul says. First, a pure heart. The heart is the center of your being. It's the origin of your intellect. It's the origin of your emotions. Everything flows out of your heart. Love flows out of a heart that has been cleansed by God. A guilt-ridden heart, a heart that is guilty doesn't love well because a guilty heart can't get past itself. And you know that. If your life and your heart are guilt-ridden, you don't love other people well because you're consumed with your own guilt. Right? So love flows out of a pure heart. Good conscience. Conscience is one's inner awareness of the quality of one's actions. Inner awareness of the quality of one's actions. So if you have a conscience that's seared or bad, then you don't have an awareness that your actions are sinful or wrong. So a person with a bad or a seared conscience can't love well because a person with a seared conscience doesn't know that they are sinning or hurting someone. Love flows from a good conscience. Sincere faith. That word sincere means genuine, not hypocritical. Right? The opposite would be an insincere or a hypocritical faith. Someone with a hypocritical faith would say one thing, but do another. Someone with a hypocritical faith does not love well. So what Paul is saying here is that sound doctrine 
actually produces love, and first and foremost, love for God, which then equates to love for others. But why does sound doctrine produce love for God? Because sound doctrine reveals the character of God. And the more you learn of him, the more you love him. Right? The, the notion that all I see is that theology and doctrine is creating division and, and distrust. So we're just going to punt that to the curb and love well and love like Jesus loved. Two, two problems with that. Number one, if you see theology and doctrine producing the opposite of love and division, then it's not sound doctrine. And number two, if you say, we're just going to love like Jesus did, well, how do you know who Jesus is without doctrine? You don't know who he is without his character being revealed. And that's what doctrine, set of beliefs does. It tells you who he is. Author Frank Sheed writes this. A virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. Love of God is not the same thing as knowledge of God. Love of God is immeasurably more important than knowledge of God. But if a man loves God knowing a little about him, he should love God more from knowing more about him. For every new thing about God is a new reason for loving him. Sound doctrine actually increases love and affection for God, which increases love and affection for others. It is bad or imbalanced or insufficient doctrine that actually produces less love and affection. So if you know someone who, who seems to be very theologically astute and very doctrinal, and what you see from them is a lack of love, then you trace it back and say, their doctrine's not good. It's imbalanced. It's insufficient. It's lacking. Sound doctrine produces greater affection and greater love for God and others. Why does sound doctrine matter? It preserves the church. It produces love. And finally, it exalts Christ. It exalts Christ. Verse seven, these certain persons desiring to be teachers of the law. Teachers of the law were Jewish teachers of the Old Testament. They were men of great learning. They were held in high esteem in their communities. And so these certain people in Ephesus, in the church at Ephesus, wanted the esteem and they wanted this authoritative place in the community. That was their motivation. But here's the problem. End of verse seven. Without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In other words, they didn't know what they were talking about. They had misinterpreted the Old Testament. They had misinterpreted the purpose of God's law. You say, how? Verse 8. 
Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully or properly. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just or the righteous. Apparently, these people were abusing God's law by making it out to be the means by which someone could attain righteousness. In other words, they were using the law and then they were mixing in these genealogies and these myths and patching it together to say, this is how you become a more holy, righteous person. And so what you, you get a picture of here is that these men were, these teachers, these people were sitting around in this small group of self-righteous believers giving this endless teaching with these myths and genealogies to say, if you do all this, you'll attain this higher spirituality. You'll become more holy. You'll become a better person. This was not just bad doctrine. It was horrendous doctrine. This bad doctrine, misinterpreting the Old Testament, exalted people, namely the first and foremost, the teachers, right? They were lifted up. Look how much they know. Look at these truths they've unpacked. Look at this code they've, they've figured out in the, in, the New, in the Old Testament and through this genealogy. So the teachers were being lifted up. And then if you attain to it, guess what? Now you were lifted up. You were a success story. And that's what happens when God's law, and that just means his commands, Summarized by the Ten Commandments. In fact, all the sins that are listed here in verses 9 and 10 track. They track with uh, the fifth through the ninth commandments of the Tenth Commandment, of the Ten Commandments. So he's just tracking here God's law. That if the law is the means by which you attain holiness or righteousness and measure up to God, then by definition, you are at the center of the story because either you make it or you don't. And if you make it, you're a success. And so the law becomes this tool for your own heroics. And look what I've done. And I would say that if these teachers of the law, these certain people that were teaching this horrible doctrine, it's possible that they were using these genealogies in the Old Testament to tell stories of people in these genealogies that had done something great and had attained righteousness and they were saying, go be like that. Now, here's what's scary. A vast majority of the way that we interpret the Old Testament or that I would say it's interpreted, generally speaking, falls in that line, which is go be a hero like David. Go be a hero like Moses. Go be a hero like Noah. Now, what's conveniently missing when that's the interpretation of the Old Testament and the Old Testament, quote, heroes, what's missing is the horrific and atrocious acts of sin that those men committed. Bad doctrine exalts the wrong person, namely you or people. Bad doctrine exalts the wrong person, and I would say ultimately it leaves people hopeless. 
and rejecting the gospel because at some point, the law crushes you. God's commands crush you. You may be able for a month to just button it up and get it done. At some point, though, God's commands absolutely crush you. And if your hope is in attaining righteousness and holiness through those commands, then where are you left? Hopeless, and at some point, just rejecting anything in the scriptures because of where it's left you. Theologian Stanley Hauerhaus explores this notion of teaching authority in the church. He explores it in relation to a medical analogy. He says, if a medical student told his advisor, I'm not into anatomy this year, I'm into relating, and asked to skip anatomy class so that he could build relationships with people, what would the medical school reply be? Something like this. Who do you think you are, kid? You're going to take anatomy. If you don't like it, that's tough. And then Howarus, after that exchange, he gives this, makes this crucial point. Now, what that shows is that people believe incompetent physicians can hurt them. Therefore, people expect medical schools to hold their students responsible for the kind of training that is necessary to be competent physicians. On the other hand, few people believe an incompetent minister can damage their salvation. And the point he's making is that if we see in the medical world that it's not enough for a doctor to be able to relate to people, we call that good bedside manners. That's important. But if that's not enough, that they actually have to know what they're doing and practice medicine accurately and truthfully. If we have that kind of discernment in whom we trust, entrust the care of our bodies, then even more should we have even greater discernment in whom we trust to care for our souls because bad teaching Bad doctrine is more deadly than bad surgery. So if bad doctrine exalts the wrong person, what does sound doctrine, or who does sound doctrine exalt? Who does sound doctrine exalt? Verse nine, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, we just explored that, if it's not laid down for the just, then what is the law of God laid down for? But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. And then as I said, Paul goes on at the end of verse 9 and end of verse 10 and lists sins that track with commandments 5 through 9 of the Ten Commandments. What's Paul teaching here about the Old Testament? How we interpret it and specifically how we interpret the purpose of God's law. Romans chapter three, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then Paul reiterates this again in Romans 7, 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
God did not give the law, primary purpose, God did not give the law as a means for you to earn your righteousness. He gave the law to show you how sinful you are and to show you your need for a savior. God's law is intended, his commands are intended to see how sinful you are and to drive you to Christ, the one who has faithfully obeyed every one of God's commands and fulfilled the law perfectly. When you understand the Old Testament that way, when you understand the Ten Commandments that way, it drives you to Christ, it exalts Christ as the one who has obeyed for you, Christ becomes the hero of the story, not you. Christ becomes the hero of the story. I would say one of the reasons that bad doctrine is so prevalent in our world, certainly in the church today, is because many believers, and this was certainly the case of me. I came to Christ when I was 22. And when I started reading the Bible and I started reading the Old Testament, I mean, it just, it, it read to me initially because I had never read the Bible until I was 22. It read to me as all these stories and pieces of information and uh, many of us, depending on where you're at in your journey, can be at that place. And, and bad doctrine develops when all of these individual pieces hang out in individual places and there's not one unifying story between Old and New Testament. And so these pieces get defined uh, in, in separation from each other, and that's what leads to bad doctrine. There's no unifying vision. There's no big picture that unites the, stories, the story of the Bible into one. David Brooks, he gives this great illustration of the need for a big picture, the need for a larger vision, right, an understanding of the entire story of the Bible. And he gives the illustration of chess. And he says there were a handful of highly skilled chess players, call them grandmasters. And then there was a handful of very unskilled chess players. And they were all shown a series of chess boards with pieces on the boards for about five to 10 seconds each. And after they saw the boards, uh, they were asked to remember where the pieces were on the boards. The grandmasters, the highly skilled chess players, remembered every piece on every board. And the unskilled players remembered maybe four, maybe five pieces here and there. And David Brooks says the reason that these highly skilled chess players had this amazing ability to remember where chess pieces were was not because they had a better IQ, a higher IQ, or better memory. This is what he says. The real reason the grandmasters could remember the game boards so well is that after so many years of study, they saw the boards in a different way. When average players saw the boards, they saw a group of individual pieces. When the masters saw the boards, they saw formations. Instead of seeing a bunch of letters on a page, they saw words, paragraphs, and stories. 
Doctrine matters because doctrine takes all the individual pieces and stories of the Bible and pulls them together in one story centered on one person, and that is Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he's on his way to Emmaus with the disciples who don't recognize him yet. And it says he began to explain to them everything about himself in the Old Testament. The entire story of the Bible holds together in Christ and is about Christ. He is the hero of the story. And he's the one who connects all these individual pieces so that now when you read the Old Testament, you read it differently. You read the story of David and Goliath and you don't say, wow, look how brave David is. I need to be brave in my situation. You say, no, I'm the scared Israelite in the tent. David is a picture of Christ. I find my strength in Christ. He's fighting my battles for me. Changes the way you read the scriptures. Who's the hero of your story? Who is the hero of your story? And who's the hero of your children's story? Who are you teaching your children the hero is? It's not them. Yes, you want your kids to grow up strong, but their hero is Jesus. And so when you teach Old Testament stories to your children, don't teach them, go be like David, go be like Moses. Show them how David and Moses imperfectly are pointing to Christ. And teach them to find their rest in Jesus Christ. Because he's the hero of the story. Who is the hero of this church's story? Who is the hero of the church's story? It's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the one story that it is. The one story that finds its fulfillment in Christ, that everything hangs together in Christ. Father, forgive us when we stray from that doctrine and begin to teach or read the Bible as just moral examples. It's deadly. Father, as we read the scriptures, and, and it reveals your character, and it reveals the character of your son, Jesus, as we learn more of you, and Jesus, as we learn more of your character, would we fall more in love with you? And as we do that, would it soften our hearts? that we would love others well with great compassion and great patience. And Father, if we find that our doctrine is leading us to be harsh and divisive with people, would you by your spirit cause us to backtrack 
to what we actually do believe and where that wrong belief is that's causing us not to love well. Jesus, you are the hero of the story of the church, the story of the world. You are the church's one foundation. And as we respond now in worship by singing, would you remind us of that? In Christ's name we pray, amen.